0: Take a Bible and go to 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 19 this morning. If you'd like to use the Pew Bible, it's on page 1016. 1016. And as you're making your way there, let me just say that it is a privilege to be with you this morning. Your brothers and sisters in Christ at Grace Presbyterian Church in Douglasville. They send you greetings. And it is once again a blessing for me to be with you in worship today. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 through 19. This is the word of God. Let us give our attention to it. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And if it begins with us, what will become the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Thus far, God's holy word. Let's pray. O Lord, our good and gracious, merciful and kind King, we are grateful, grateful for your word, and we ask that you would help us to feed upon the heavenly food that you have provided here. Would you nourish us upon Christ? Would you instruct us in the faith? For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I probably don't have to tell you, but we live in a day where there is a lot of confusion. A lot of confusion regarding what is the church called to do? Is she called to be a social club? Is that it? A political action committee? How about a production place for movies? Or maybe a promoter for local business? a coffee house that fosters community, a, a filling station of some sort where people can go and kind of get their experiential fix. Is this the church? Well, the answer is no, obviously. The scriptures give us a very different perspective on what the church is called to do. For example, be word-focused. The Bible is to be the foundation of For any local congregation, because it is a sure, illuminating, true and divine word. We could also say that the church is called to worship God, right? To do so with a grateful heart, especially in view of what the Lord has done for us in Jesus Christ. We're to do it with reverence and awe and spirit and in truth, sincerely and according to scripture. And most definitely, the church is called to be evangelistic, yes? Seeking opportunity to speak about Christ to those who don't know Him. But today, today we come to something else. A churchly calling that impacts every single person in this room in a tangible way. Our text this morning reminds us that we as the church, are called to suffer well. What does that look like? What does suffering well entail, we might ask? Three things from our text. Three. To begin with, it involves rejoicing in suffering. You might already know that Peter's original audience was one that knew the meaning of suffering, They were very familiar with it. They were facing persecution because of their commitment to Christ. During that time, Christians were increasingly unpopular in parts of the Roman Empire. They refused to bow the knee to the pagan idols of Rome. So, as a result, they were relationally ostracized, socially mistreated, verbally assaulted, and there were threats of much, much worse. They were suffering. Life was hard for these Christians. Besides dealing with the normal effects of living in a fallen world, you know, like broken bodies and broken wills, they had people that were seeking to break them. And so Peter begins this section, very importantly, in verse 12, by calling them beloved. And don't miss the significance of such a declaration To these weary saints, he identifies them as dear to God. As those who have the Lord's eye. As ones to whom God has set his unwavering affection upon. His unending and unapathetic fondness. As the children's song says, his love for his people is deep and wide. It's active. It's persistent. So much so that Peter turns this truth into a noun in order to identify their current state. They're not simply loved. They are the beloved ones. Those upon whom God has set his ongoing affection. And think about for just a second the comfort that such a statement must have brought to these believers... Times were tough. They were were being pressed from various sides. But with this one word, beloved, they were being reminded, God loves you. He loves you. No matter what your circumstances are, he will not forsake you. And maybe today, you've come here, and you need to hear that same word assuring you that even though you're suffering for the faith, being ridiculed by others for being a Christian, or maybe it's just that you're being squeezed by the pressures of life. God has not forgotten you, dear believer. You are his beloved. And no matter what suffering you face in this life, that will not change. The cross of Christ proves it. The resurrection of Christ secures it. But you might wonder then, if I am a part of the beloved, why am I suffering? Why am I encountering trials and tribulations? Peter says, look at verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He declares The fact that hardship has come upon you, well, it shouldn't be a shock. Because this is a cursed world where suffering in its various forms is a reality. But for the Christian, that hardship serves a particular purpose, he says. The testing and purifying of faith. That means that God takes your trial that you're going through right now. He takes it into his fatherly hand and he uses it for your good. So then just because others marginalize you or mistreat you because of your faith in Christ or because hardship in a variety of forms has come upon you, that doesn't mean that the Lord has moved away from his previous commitment to you. In fact, listen carefully. Because he takes the troubles that come upon you and employs them for your benefit, surely that is further proof of his faithfulness and goodness to you. When pressed, then, do not doubt his affection, his dedication. Instead, Peter says something that is surprising something that is antithetical to our therapeutic culture, something that is seemingly at odds with what you and I would naturally think. He declares, verse 13, But rejoice, rejoice in suffering, praise God. Now you might be thinking, what? Did Peter really say that? Did he really declare, bless the Lord in the midst of persecution and in the face of personal trials? Well, you can see it for yourself. He says, the answer is yes. Peter didn't stumble over his words here. He said, rejoice, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. So, for example, did Christ's body break? Yes, yes. Upon the cross. Is yours breaking right now? If so, rejoice. Was Jesus emotionally grieved? He was on the cross. Are you emotionally grieved? Praise God. Was Christ reviled and verbally assaulted? Absolutely. Are you at school or at work or in your family experiencing something similar? If so, bless the Lord. And I listen, I know that this sounds strange. I, I know. But rejoice in suffering like this because in it you are following in the footsteps of your Savior. Who understood pain and sorrow. Who experienced the world's maltreatment. And if you are encountering similar things, you are walking the same road as Jesus. Who was humiliated, brought low and battered by those who hated him. If that is you, like your savior. Suffer well by rejoicing much. In doing so, you showed the fruit of genuine faith. That does not doubt God in trials, but worships Him in trials. And do you know what doing so will produce in you? You know. Perseverance. It will lead you to press on when things go against you. So that, verse 13, you may also rejoice and be glad when Christ's glory is revealed. Joy amidst suffering is hard. It goes against the grain of our natural tendencies. But when we do it, we manifest evidence of the Spirit's work within us. Until that great day when there will be no more troubles. There will only be joy, astounding, ineffable delight. But we're not there yet. So, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ. And we could add, if you're generally suffering in this world... And you're not buckling to society's stress to doubt God's goodness or to compromise the faith. You are blessed, Peter declares. Why? He says, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You know what that means? That means that the same spirit who filled Jesus to joyfully press on fills you. The same spirit's who, while staring at the reality of the cross, empowered Christ to declare, not my will, but yours, O Father, be done. That spirit empowers you also. And the fact that you are rejoicing in the face of adversities shows it. It reveals that the spirit is at work in your life. He is enabling you. Therefore, keep blessing God. Keep praising Him. Keep showing this kind of Spirit-produced fruits. Keep following in the footsteps of your Savior. Not complaining when hardship comes upon you. Not neglecting worship. Not discontent. Not silent in song, mind you. But rejoicing. Rejoicing in suffering. Like Job. Though things are hard, will you still worship God? May it be. May it be. What else does suffering well look like? Not just rejoicing in suffering, but also pursuing holiness in suffering. In the 18th century, there were three Huguenot ladies who were imprisoned for over 20 years in the Tower of Constance in southern France. And they were put there because of their faith in Christ. They were severely mistreated day after day, given their dedication to Jesus. Week upon week, they were tempted to, to leave the faith behind and to respond against their, attacker, their attackers in ungodly ways. So you know what they did? in order to help one another, they they took some kind of etching utensil and they carved upon the prison wall of their cells the word resist, resist. It was a reminder that on difficult days when persecution and pressure surrounded them, that they were to stand firm They needed to keep before their minds the all-important task of resisting temptations. They were suffering. They still needed to be steadfast in the fight. And is that not to be true of you and me as well? Against the winds of temptations and troubles, against persecution and adversities, aren't we to also be immovable in the faith? Remember, the flesh, the world, and the devil do not sign a ceasefire agreement simply because we're going through difficulties. In fact, they're oftentimes the ones that are immediately behind the attacks upon us. They're the ones that are pressing us. And then they use the situation to further assail us, leading us to give in to temptation rather than resist to pursue ungodliness. And not holiness. Given our struggle here, we need to heed Peter's admonition in this text. He says, look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Now, it appears that there were some whose ungodly actions were producing suffering for themselves. Their angry outbursts and gossiping tendencies, their shameful attitudes and unsubmissive spirits, their thievery and busybodiness brought about tribulations. Their hardship was the result of spiritual boneheadedness. They just wouldn't listen to the call to seek the righteous life. And as a result, they were suffering. Times were tough. Parents, we might liken it to a seven-year-old who tells somebody, life's not fair, my parents took away my favorite toy. And then when they're asked about it, you realize that it was because they socked their sibling in the face with that toy. or, Or they told a lie regarding that toy. Similarly, when we face troubles because of our transgressions, It's our fault. It's our fault. It's the consequence of sin. But if it comes because we're being true to the faith, well, that's different. Verse 16, look there. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. If you are enduring adversity because of obedience, you have no reason to be embarrassed. If you're being faithful in word and deed, and as a result, society is mocking you or rejecting you, don't feel bad. Instead, praise the Lord. You're being treated like, you know, some of the saints of old. Think about Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. As they stood before Nebuchadnezzar in the fiery furnace. Thousands of those who had submitted to emperor worship and idolatry versus how many? <clears throat> three faithful followers of Yahweh <coughs> can you imagine the comments that must have been made you guys you're a bunch of nobodies you're completely alone you're, you are irrelevant you're unimportant what in the world can you three do And of course, Nebuchadnezzar told them, if you don't worship the the image, you will be immediately cast into the fire. You will burn if you don't bow down to the idol. Do you remember what they did? Do you recall how they responded? They stood firm. They didn't buckle in holiness, conforming to the Babylonian way of life. No, they honored the Lord and sought righteousness, even if it costed them their lives. Well, what about us? Will we pursue holiness even as we suffer? Maybe right now you're being pressured by a family member, a coworker, someone else. They're ridiculing you because of your faith in Christ. They're going to pass you by for a promotion or a raise, given your spiritual commitments. What will you do? Will you cave and compromise? Or will you resist and remain firm? Will you see godliness in suffering? And of course, we could broaden the application a little bit to include a more general suffering. How will I respond when I'm struggling financially? When dealing with the death of a loved one, how will I respond when my body wastes away. Peter's charge throughout this letter is as follows. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also you be holy in all your conducts. Or, beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The point is, pursue holiness at all times. Don't go slack here. But especially watch out that you earnestly seek holiness in suffering. For you are particularly vulnerable during these times. So be prepared. And in order to help us Help, helps sober us regarding this. You know what Peter does? He gives a hard warning. Look at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? In other words... God is going to examine those who profess faith in Christ. And if by word in the end, they denounce the faith under social pressure, or by deed the lives they live do not match up with the confession they've made. That is, they're not seeking godliness, growing in conformity to Christ. Peter says that trouble awaits. More difficult than anything encountered in this life, and to make sure that we don't misunderstand Peter, he is not saying our perseverance amidst suffering determines our justification. Our perseverance is not the basis for us being declared righteous in God's sight. That's Christ's work. However, he is announcing our pressing on is the result of our redemption in Christ. It is the fruit of faith. You know, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. However, that faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by spirit-enabled good works. Some in these churches outwardly declared, I believe, but they were waffling as the storms of life. And the waves of attack came against them. So Peter wanted to challenge them. Do you really believe in Christ? Is he actually your savior, your hope? If so, you must persevere. Also as you suffer, not for your redemption, mind you. But in view of it, persevering is the right response to God's saving love. And it is proof that you have received it and perhaps this morning like a good massage we need this admonition pressed deeply within us as the church we are called to suffer well by rejoicing in the lord absolutely but we are also called to be those who are seeking godliness while we suffer and that means spouses husbands and wives That means that even as you suffer, you continue to give and serve one another in your trials. Believers, it means that you remain firm in sexual purity when the culture mocks you for doing so. It means that, Christian, that you guard your speech even when others think that you are just being a goody two-shoes. It means that you be faithful while enduring a variety of hardships. And that like these three ladies mentioned earlier, you suffer well by resisting. Resisting the temptation to compromise by pursuing holiness and suffering. But one last thing, briefly. What else does suffering well entail? It also includes trusting the Lord in suffering. And as we begin here, I want you to think for a second. Think about in 1 Samuel chapter 1. You remember Hannah and how she wept over her barrenness and the persecution from Peninnah? Or how about David as he was surrounded by foes? Whereas ethnic destruction was looming over Queen Esther and her people. or as Daniel was encircled by hungry lions staring death in the eyes. What did they need to do in those moments? How did they need to respond? Doubt the Lord? Was that it? Live in fear. Become anxious and worrisome. Have hard thoughts of God. Believe the lie that he doesn't care. Deny the faith. Was that how they were to react in their trials? Of course not. What were they to do? Trust God. And they did. They rested upon him whose arms were around about them. Who was a strong tower in time of need. And that is what Peter called the people to do here. As they rejoiced, as they sought the righteous life and suffering, they were to trust the Lord. Look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The word that's used, therefore, in trust. You know what it means? Have under confidence in. Holy, commit and yield oneself to. It's used to describe how kings would rely upon cupbearers who, who were you know, supposed to taste the wine and make sure that it was okay. What would happen if the cupbearer was you know, untrustworthy? Well, would-be assassins might get to the king. And the word was also used to identify how a general... Might give an important message to a herald, calling for the end to a conflict. If that message went unconveyed, if the messenger was was somehow undedicated, what might take place? Fighting could go on and on, and lives could be lost. Trust was key. And similarly for Peter, even though many dangers, toils, and snares were hounding these people, reliance upon God was essential. But then you know what he does? This is great. Peter gave some reasons why they could rely upon the Lord. And these reasons are significant for us. Because, for starters, they remind us that God doesn't simply say, Trust me, and that's it. Now, he could. He could. But lovingly and graciously, he tells us again and again and again why we can rely upon him. Why when things go against us, we can still sing. And to begin with, you see the word, therefore. Which tells us that one reason has already been stated. The fruit of faith is to lean upon divine arms amidst trials. Trusting God is what Christians do. It's part and parcel with our new identity in Jesus Christ. Just as he entrusted himself into the hands of him who judges justly, so also we who profess faith in him are to do the same. It is an evidence of our being born again. Now, you know as well as I do. We don't do that perfectly. But trusting God is certainly something that that we should be growing in. So this morning... If you have come here confessing faith in Christ, continue to do so all your days. If your hope is in the Lord, keep holding on to Him when times are tough. If you've received Jesus, go on resting in Jesus. No matter what assails you, keep suffering well according to God's will, not because of sin. But due to righteousness, go further and be more frequent in depending upon the Lord. But then you'll notice Peter says, look at verse 19 again. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a what? A faithful creator. There at the end, he subtly gives two more reasons why we can trust God. And another is divine faithfulness. Since the Lord says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Since he promises this, do you know what that means? It means that he means it. That you can, rest upon, you can rest upon him. That you can be assured that whatever assaults come upon you as a believer, the Lord will be faithful. He will not abandon you, dear friend. Did he leave, did he leave Hannah in her sorrow? How about David against his foes? Did, did the Lord leave him? What about Esther and her people? Amid certain doom. How about Daniel in the lion's den? Better yet, did the father leave his enfleshed son in the grave? In all these cases, he did not. And dear believer, he will not do that to you either. And you know why? Because he is faithful. He's faithful. His commitment to you is dogged. His love for you is everlasting. And guess what? There's feet to it. There's action behind his faithfulness. He promised redemption. He accomplished redemption. Look at the cross of Christ. Look at the resurrection of Christ. And whether for the first time in your life or for the thousandth time in your life, trust The Lord, trust him. But do so not only in view of divine faithfulness. Peter tells us also in this text that God is our creator. And such a designation gives us another cause for greater commitment to him. Because it's not simply that God is willing to help us, but also that he is able to do so when high and stormy gales come against us. He is faithful enough to come to our aid, and he is powerful enough to come to our aid. And how does Peter know that? How do you and I know that? Well, God spoke the universe into existence. That's how. With words, molecules merged. Stars were formed. Lands were shaped. Animals were given life. Man was made in God's image. The greatest profundities of the cosmos came into being by his utterances. That is power. And that is the Lord who comes near to you in suffering. So trust him. Trust him. That's a command that is given oftentimes in scripture. Do you know why? Because we struggle to believe it. We struggle. In this fallen world where afflictions and adversaries assail us, part of the church's calling is to suffer well. Yes, by rejoicing in suffering and by pursuing holiness in suffering. But to do either, we must also be trusting the Lord even in suffering. Are we doing so? The sorrows rise and troubles roll. Are we clinging to our loving Savior, brother, and friends? Are we lifting up our eyes to see Jesus amid our distress, moms and dads? Maybe right now you you feel the pressure of raising your children. It's been a hard week, and you need help. Husbands and wives. Maybe it's been difficult this week. Perhaps in your job, you feel squeezed. It could be that suffering has taken a hold of you. A text like this is calling us, calling us to rejoice in our trials, pursue holiness in our tribulations, and trust the Lord in our troubles. May God help all of us to do so. Let us pray. O God in heaven, we come to you this morning recognizing our frailty, our weakness, seeing in this passage the reality that we suffer and our great need for your spirit's enablement to rejoice amidst suffering, to pursue holiness amidst suffering, to trust you amidst suffering. Would you aid us? Would you lift up our eyes to see Jesus, him who suffered in our place? May he be the one who compels us to do all these things that this passage calls us to. For we ask it in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen.